Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This shows a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jim Murphy. Jim was the co-founder of Boltmade, which was acquired by Shopify. In this episode, we discuss Jim's extensive tech background, the Waterloo tech scene, and what it was like being acquired by Shopify. Jim's views on investing and why he decided to buy a farm. Please enjoy my conversation with Jim Murphy. Jim, I thought the best place to start would be your background. It's super extensive. I was checking it out on LinkedIn. There's multiple different companies, multiple different positions. And I guess maybe we could start with, I know you had a few different roles, a few different companies throughout your time. What really stuck out to you? What were some experience or highlights from those times that have really kind of made you the person you are today? Hmm. That's uh, thanks for asking. That's a very polite way to say that you're really old. And I, I think you're right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing te- uh, uh, tech since uh, about 1995 anyway. So that, that puts me in the, the prehistory of the internet and, and whatnot. Um, the things that, that jump out, I mean, caps of the waves really there are, you know, I started as an engineer uh, from Waterloo and chemical engineering, believe it or not, and fell into a co-op uh, job out in Calgary. Uh, where you are, uh, writing software for other chemical engineers. And at the time, it was I kind of fell into the craft accidentally of programming, and I didn't have a computer science background, but I had I was the classic Apple II at-home kid, you know, from that era, et cetera. So I, I always liked it, but I never thought it was a real future for me. I thought it was, you know, I'd have to do some, you know, kind of hardcore engineering type stuff. That was, you know, the the what was what was attractive to me at the time. But I really fell into the to the love of it. So I would characterize the first decade of my career really as kind of almost driven by the insecurity of not having a CS background and trying to pass myself off as a as a as a software developer. But at the same time, having such passion and innate joy for the craft of creating things with software. I mean, it just it was just such a lock. And and I consider myself so lucky at the time to transition in the first year of my professional life out of chemical engineering. And I was living in Texas at the time working in uh, uh, petrochemical industries and oil, the oil field. And, you know, I had colleagues that, you know, carried a tin lunch, lunchbox to work and, you know, got their work boots dirty and stuff. <laughs> and then here I was sitting in an office writing software. At the time, I didn't feel like a like an, an actual chemical engineer, nor did I feel too much like a software developer because I felt like I was really faking it. But I made that transition in, in uh, around 95 to just say, hey, the Internet, it looks like a thing. The, the PC revolution was still raging at the time. There's a lot of, there was a lot of that kind of exciting pioneer vibe um, uh, happening. So, you know, I was, I had one foot in a, a very conservative sort of stodgy engineering land where things took decades or, or more to kind of accomplish. And then this next, this other world was just like a rocket ship taking off. So I, I made a decision early on to just get uh, fully committed to that, to that world. And um uh, and and that was really the first the first decade. I was I really committed myself to the craft of uh, software development, programming. This was kind of pre 
internet entrepreneurship. I mean, you know, Mark Andreessen had his little browser company, you know, like it was, there was a couple of things going on, uh, but entrepreneurship wasn't the, um, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a vocation kind of how it's become uh, today. Right. So, so it, it, in, in some ways, technically I was lucky there because I could, I could take time. Everything was new to me. You know, I, uh, relational databases, you know, concurrent programming, memory management, every new topic in engineering was like, wow, there's a whole, there's a lifetime of stuff to learn. And I just had such innate enjoyment for the learning of it. Uh, and also the pace of it was like kind of immediate gratification at the time. Right. I mean, you could, you could really turn around and build things uh, really quickly. And that was attractive. That was, that was new, believe it or not. You know, the idea that you could iterate and prototype and build things quickly uh, kind of became my my forte in a world of otherwise, you know, things taking months or years to even, you know, see the light of day. So, so I'd say the, the, the first decade of my career was really um, focused on the craft of engineering and becoming proficient. Uh, you know, the next one was finding leverage, uh, I would say, um, at, you know, had, whether that's through company building, um, through running larger projects, organizational development, uh, building my own companies uh, as it came. And, and obviously there's a broader a range of skills there. Uh, but I really enjoyed the first decade where I could be an individual craftsperson and really do, do the work. Uh, and then the next decade, I, I really enjoyed kind of going in that T-shaped sort of, sort of personality set of um, learning everything from finance, raising money, selling, uh, marketing, growth, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of people skills, uh, I ended up really enjoying too. Cause what I, what I realized is that was kind of my primary, um, that was my favorite way to kind of, to, uh, uh, to leverage my own skill and abilities really through, through people, uh, and, and setting up great environments for people to do work. So that was the second decade. And then, and then it really culminated at, uh, at Shopify when my company was acquired in there. And, and I, I got to apply my, uh, my hand to, to building out the plus engineering organization, uh, for, and then, uh, and then that's, that's it so far. <laughs> I'd be interested from the the first decade. Uh, what was that time like? You know, that pre two thousand. You know, you said entrepreneurship wasn't as you know prevalent as it is now. When you look back, I think hindsight twenty twenty. We tech seems like an obvious thing that was going to become huge and touch every corner of business. But at that mm. time, was it you know, hey, this is going to be quite big. You know, it's going to be interesting. Or did you really see it? you know, kind of hitting its stride like it does today? Well, if, certainly things have scaled uh, beyond my expectations at that time. Um, I think it was, I think it's kind of a, I have maybe a bittersweet answer. I think back in that time, it was easier to imagine yourself as one of the good guys <laughs> in tech where uh, mostly because your impact, uh, you know, our impact was was marginal back then. I mean, we still built things. We still, um, you know, um, uh, shipped and distributed amazing products around the world, but we weren't as socially woven into the fabric of culture uh, as we are today. Um, and I think those uh, are relatively new challenges, right? And I think the industry in general is grappling with those, you know, with, with that responsibility, right? I mean, we didn't, uh, we, so so it was kind of easy to stay in your lane, stay in your box and become, and focus on your craft as being the primary mechanism of value. Uh, but I think now things are more complex, right? There's, um, there's, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're much more connected. Uh, there's there's uh, consequences <laughs> to the products and the services that we build and scale that I think we're relatively um, unaccustomed to actually shouldering the burden of, <laughs> if, I, if that makes any sense. So I think that's that's kind of how it changes uh, because we've grown because it's been, 
you know, the impact it really, it, it, as in this corner of the economy, it's been what's working for the last decade or more. Right. And, and I think, uh, that's actually something that I've been uh, squaring up on a little bit more as well is how do we apply the dynamism that was existing in the nineties. And certainly we leveraged and exploited in, in the, in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, how do we find that dynamism in other parts of the economy as well? I guess from like the, the first decade, I'd be interested to see what are like, you know, was it, do you look back on those times as the glory days of tech? It's like the beginning, you know, the pioneer, or do you still feel some of those feelings nowadays with, you know, you know, whether whether you want to go web three or AI or these kind of new frontiers, like how do you, do you see similarities between these two periods or do you kind of miss those, those good old days, so to speak? Uh, it, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think I'm nostalgic for, for the good old days. I, I think it was, uh, nothing worked. I think that's something that, was, that it's easy to imagine that, uh, you know, the technology was kind of always here, but uh, really up until the web two inflection point, most of the tech stack that we relied on didn't work. And so a lot of our time was spent debugging things that were kind of supposed to work. Uh, e- even if that was kind of user error or developer error and kind of composing these things, I mean, details of you know memory management and concurrent you know, programming bugs and scaling and, and the cost of all this stuff was really prohibitive. And so, you know, there's all these kind of, uh, you know, crazy stories of people buying, you know, Sun Starfire 10,000s for, you know, many, many millions of dollars to stand up a website written in C++, or, you know, and it's like, oh my God, like, this is just, this is not how you do it <laughs> as we've come to learn. So there's, I have no nostalgia for that time. Uh, uh, but I think maybe kind of post web to the tech stack worked Right, languages, you know, dynamic languages like Ruby or Python kind of emerged. Um, JavaScript became more pervasive. You know, the browser pla- as a platform kind of congealed into something that was usable for applications, et cetera. So there's all this kind of, you know, macro level, you know, uh, stabilization of the platform to build products on that all of a sudden made entrepreneurship viable, like in a lot of ways, right? Like you didn't need tens of millions to build like something incredibly rudimentary. So that was cool. I, it almost feels like we're going through another similar inflection point now. Um, I, I really enjoyed the Web two era. That's really where I was, you know, where, where I spent a lot of my time and effort. And I and I saw that transition point of like chasing mundane, arcane crap uh, into actually building products of value. It's like, oh, okay, you could do this. And I think that's part of what unlocked, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship at the niche enterprise SaaS sort of template framework thing, you know, like that's, that's kind of what enabled a lot of that sort of stuff. Uh, and a lot of young entrepreneurs that were savvy in that stack were able to kind of you know, see those opportunities and build the, build the things that worked there, uh, which was what I think is really cool. Um, you know, when, when you go to, you know, is, is web three is blockchain is, you know, our NFTs. I don't know. Is that, is this the inflection point is AI? I don't know. Um, in some ways, it feels like it is in other ways, when you look at the, you know, the magnitude of the data required to drive and parameterize a lot of these models, it's hard to say, oh yeah, this is going to unlock a lot of opportunity for startups because who has that data, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be, and that, it, you know, I, I worry a little bit that, you know, the, the, we've kind of casually said that data is going to be the oil of, you know, the next century or whatever it is. It's like, well, the, whoever has that oil <laughs> is going to, is going to capitalize on those, on those um, opportunities. And so I think as much as that tech, gets a lot of um, play and, and, and it's interesting. Um, I don't know if it's a, a mechanism for entrepreneurship uh, the same way that, you know, the web two tech stack, for example, was very democratized and easy to easy to access. 
the first decade you're really focused on um you know that individual contributor pivoting more to the tech space second decade you actually take on becoming a founder an entrepreneur what really was the the catalyst behind that had you always had maybe an entrepreneurial upbringing or background uh you had, you had an itch that you had to scratch um and what were some things that kind of happened over that decade that really you know made you who you are today yeah i, I think it comes down to temperament and personality and uh i mean that, that's the, the dirty little secret of entrepreneurship is when you can't get a job or hold a job you start your own companies <laughs> and and that you know that uh it certainly applied in my case where i, I just felt um it worked out better when I was in charge right? in the projects I worked with. And so I, I ended up nat naturally gravitating to that over time, uh, meaning increasing span of control, increasing, you know, scope of, of what I was working on. And then it just kind of became obvious that this is the direction that I want to go. And, and, you know, I had, had uh, a great opportunity to, to work with um, some really experienced entrepreneurs in Boston where we lived in that area. And, uh, and, and they, they introduced me to a lot of that, that world and we got a chance to start a company together in the enterprise uh, uh, software space and so I, I that was really my first you know um, kind of front row access to you know to scaled up entrepreneurship that wasn't you know home projects and stuff like that but it was you know raise money and and uh, and, and build a company and sell you know to global brands etc so that that kind of got me uh, introduced to that world and it was the you know in the mid aughts to we sold that company in 2007 uh, so that really kind of jump-started me as a as a, as a co-founder in a, you know, in a software company. And then from then on, you know, I, I, that's when I moved back to Canada. Uh, we had three young kids at the time. We had three under three, uh, which is a whole other podcast. Uh, if you ever want to talk about that, <laughs> not something you choose, but that's a whole, that's a whole other story. Um, and we, we came back to my wife and I are both from, from Canada. And so we ended up back in, in Waterloo area. And honestly, I came back kind of with my tail between my legs because I was thinking, well, you know, I got a pretty good start at things. Um, and I guess I'll live on airplanes for the rest of my life, you know, visiting, you know, the Valley or New York or Boston or, or Austin or wherever we'd be. Um, having not stayed in contact with the, with the tech ecosystem back in Canada at all until, you know, we found ourselves here in 2007. It was a delight to, you know, to come into this area and see the, just the gradient and, and the, the real change that I think I look back somewhat um, revisionist in, in a revisionist sense is that, in those larger centers, you know, the relationships and the style of engagement was much more transactional, right? They were big, they're sophisticated, they were filled with people, highly competitive. Uh, but back here, things were much more personal, much more um, scaled to kind of a human scale. Uh, and I could actually make an impact or I felt I could actually make an impact. And so it almost compelled me to, to try and help uh, where, where I could. So it was honestly, personally, the best decision we ever made uh, to come back to Waterloo. Uh, and that's a, on a personal level, on a financial level, on a technical level. I, I actually had more impact back in Waterloo than I could have, than I think I could have, you know, in another, uh, in another center, whether it's Northern California or, uh, or Boston or New York. And, and I didn't think that <laughs> when I was coming back. I thought I was, I thought I was being the take one for the team, uh, you know, dad, right? But it, it certainly worked out pretty well. What was the Waterloo scene like in 2007, 2008? I'm assuming BlackBerry was mm -hmm. huge at that yep. time. What, yep. was, what was the kind of energy and the feeling that you were coming back to there and that made you really feel like, hey, I don't need to be in the Bay Area or New York or any other place like, like this, is, this is it? 
Well, the, the cool thing is I, I started taking some meetings uh, the first three or four months I was back just to kind of get to know people and, and everybody was really helpful in, in introducing us like every coffee chat, you know, created three more coffee chats. But within the, that span of time, I think I met everybody and then and, and everybody was kind of overlapped with each other. They all had these rich histories with each other. So I was like, wow, you know, there's there's uh, there's just a lot of um, cohesion to this community that was that was new that was, you know, that I, that I hadn't experienced. So it was pretty small. There had been obviously some notable successes in Waterloo up to that point, but it wasn't anywhere near even where it is now. And it keeps accelerating. Right. Which is is, is pretty incredible. I mean, I think at the time, um, you know, I, I met a bunch of the kind of the community um, sort of sort of the uh, you know, significant folks in the community back then. And just, you, you know, you look at then and now and it's just it's just scale is the word that comes to comes to mind. Right. And, and I think back then we're, we're fighting with issues of brain drain. Everybody wants to move to the U.S. And how are we going to retain these engineers? And how do we get overly conservative Canadians to actually, you know, rescind an offer to IBM and start a company and <laughs> do these sort of the kind of the one on one issues of of uh, community building and company building and, and, and encouraging a startup ecosystem. And certainly that's, we're well past, we're a decade into that, <laughs> past that, right? But but those were the things that were were top of mind there of just how do we put more people through the pipeline of, you know, of, of building companies. And uh, gratefully that's, you know, I think that's uh, hit out of the park. Uh, there's, you know, I think we're now into a new set of challenges with remote work and and uh, the flattening of the world, but you know, that's, the, you know, we're at least another iteration uh, uh, beyond where we were when I started in, uh, in Waterloo. With Waterloo as a, a tech region there, why do you think it's been able to, you know, I wouldn't call it punch above its way. I'd say per capita, it's probably one of the not it, even potentially the top tech area in the world. Uh, you know, I know founders from Instacart and other even huge companies in the U.S. have gone to Waterloo. What do you think's made mm -hmm. that? Is it, you know, success creates more success? Or, you know, like what has made that, you know, university and like work ecosystem so strong? Yeah, I, I think there's uh, um, there's a number of factors, right, that that apply. I think the university is obviously the big draw uh, and the 800 pound gorilla. Uh, the co-op system at the university is, you know, I think the highly differentiating factor and should be copied by every STEM department in every school in North America, as far as I can tell. Uh, because what what it exposes uh, people to is you know that pragmatic uh, aspect of what it actually is like to do the work that it comes down from the you know off of the textbook and you know onto the keyboard and into into actual work. So I, I think that's you know that, that's been talked about a lot, but I think it's the core of it. Uh, you know, quite frankly, there's also the brand of Waterloo as a selection mechanism as a university. Um, you know, I think is you know, factors pretty, you know, when you start with some of the brightest, you know, kids in Canada applying to there, I mean, I think it's, it's um, becomes a bit of a flywheel of its own. Um, so I, I think between the admissions department, the co-op department, and uh, <laughs> you, you've, you've got a lot of wind in your back. Um, but in terms of keeping the community going, it's, I think that was even when I started was a bit of a question mark, right? I mean, you're, you're in the middle of a cornfield in Southern Ontario. How do you build a tech ecosystem out of that? Um, and I think BlackBerry did an incredible service by showing the world and the community that it can be done, right? <laughs> like, it's, like, this is, this is a possible here. Um, the surprising part about BlackBerry when I returned in 2007 was kind of how isolated it actually was from the community. I think it was so its growth was so fast. Uh, it's kind of sucked up all the oxygen in the community and beyond 
uh, that there wasn't a lot of like baby Jim and Mike's out, you know, um, starting companies yet. Right. But had since the diaspora of Blackberry, um, you know, product managers, you know, had, has, has started to circulate since, uh, but that hadn't happened yet. So I think that was also, a you know, a, a bit of a, of a mechanism that kicked in later after uh, Blackberry was starting to experience its decline a little bit. So you come back to Waterloo after a successful exit in the Boston area. What is your mm-hmm. next move as a founder, as an entrepreneur? What do you kind of get involved in? Is this pre-Bolt made? Is there a few mm-hmm. more ventures before then? Like what was the experience then? Yeah, so uh, I came back a really, really flat-footed, uh, and it was probably the first time in my career where that was the case. Right, I didn't have momentum going into a, a, a situation, so I, I, I had to. Um, I, I was babysitting the acquisition that I was doing in Mind Reef at the time, so I had some some calendar time to kind of uh, to adjust to this new world. So certainly got, got to meet a lot of the folks in Waterloo, um, get a bit of a sense for what was going on, and at the time there was a young company starting up uh, that could use some some engineering leadership help. And so I ended up joining that company called PostRank. Really amazing team, uh, young, uh, uh, first time founder um, and and early early team right out of school. And so I, I got to see kind of firsthand what Waterloo engineering or Waterloo computer science <laughs> could do, uh, you know, fresh and raw and just raw horsepower, horsepower right, out of, right out of the gates. And it was amazing. Uh, but as an entrepreneur, I wrestled with that because I was—it wasn't my company, um, and it—and I wasn't the boss. I was all of a sudden the old guy uh, that was asked for <laughs> for, for advice, uh, and and I, I did what I could certainly in that you know in that company, but it wasn't mine. And and uh, uh, and and you know when it comes to aspects of company building and what are we strategy and whatnot. Um, it's, it's tricky once you've been on the other side of the line to then become an employee and thematically that became a challenge, you know, all the way along. I mean, I think that's, that's, uh, something they don't tell you about entrepreneurship as well is that it, it, uh, it's kind of a, a one way street <laughs> once you've seen, once you've had access to that level of responsibility, it's kind of hard to put it back in the, in the, you know, in the lamp, uh, as it were. And so you, you tend to act like an owner all the time, uh, which can be great. Uh, and it can also be challenging when it's not yours <laughs> to own. So I think that's how I think. I mean, I, I, I still am in touch with all those folks uh, and really enjoy that team and those people. They, we ended up uh, selling that company to Google. They joined the Google Analytics team ultimately. Um, I, you know, maybe we could have built a, uh, you know, a bigger company out of that at the time. But I think, you know, the, given that given where the group was, it was a really great outcome. Uh, and, and so they moved that team down to Mountain View, and they continue to work. Uh, out of, from there, uh, obviously, been it's been a while ago, so some have started to circulate around and whatnot. But it was a great team. Really enjoyed working with post post rank folks. So that was that was my my introduction to Waterloo, uh, and then I started uh, working with a few other entrepreneurs, putting together uh, possibly a, kind of a next phase uh, fund uh, investment fund, um, and we were looking at kind of the next uh, you know the next evolution of venture capital as you know less than just you know quiet money, uh, more, more operationally engaged, uh, you know, as, as the models evolve now, we kind of recognize it, but back then in 2010, 2011, um, it was less obvious, you know, really that, you know, VC should kind of, you know, you know, sign checks and get out of the way. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of the, the, the preferred model. 
Uh, but we we experimented with, experimented with some aspects of that, um, and really what we got to was we started a, a couple of interesting companies in that world. So I got a, a, a few more iterations of you know, early stage company building uh, at that phase. But then what I really realized I like to do is build products. Period, and and really focus on the craft of building products, building teams that build products, and kind of work at that meta layer of what kind of culture environment, uh, team coordination works the best. Uh, to really, you know, find that balance between conscientious uh, discipline and creativity and fluidity of of, uh, of evolution, and that's really where Boltman came out of. Is I had a really kick-ass team of people that um, we were using between all these various projects, <laughs> and honestly, that they, those individuals deserved a little bit more structure <laughs> and a, a little bit more of a future than than being as. Um, um, you know, as, as kind of crazy and fluid as we were between those companies. So we, we, we established Boltmate as that, as that kind of entity. And we really committed to the craft of building software products. Um, and I, I think that's where, you know, we, we looked at Waterloo as, a, as kind of a raw horse, horsepower of engineering, uh, you know, sort of, sort of community. But in terms of the wisdom of product or growth or company building, um, just didn't have as many, as much experience there, you know, as a community to, to pull on. And so we wanted to be a, a resource uh, and and a and a, um, improve that that score. So we attracted a lot of a lot of like-minded folks that really enjoyed you know uh, UX and design and um, you know a lot of these kind of newer disciplines that were just emerging at that point and put together a really amazing team and and uh, the variety of projects we got to work on was was really great. I mean we had clients from uh, work back in California and Boston and and locally in in Canada. And just such a variety of of, uh, of things, and and there wasn't a lot of infrastructure or layers of protection between developers and designers and their projects, right? So so people got a lot of uh, a lot of laps on the track, um, you know, to build with different tech stacks, different types of customers, different type types of environments, uh, and I, I think it was an ideal environment to really accelerate people's careers, uh, is to, to expose them to. New projects, lots of iterations, lots of lots of times at bat right, to get up and, and build things and, and iterate and go deep, like not just not just superficially, but uh, to go deep and and uh, and build interesting things. So it was a great uh, it's a great time, um, 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 and it certainly is what attracted the attention of uh, of a few acquirers, with, which uh, Shopify ended up uh, being by far the best uh, best outcome for us. What were some some products that your team worked on? um that would just come to mind instantly that yeah that was so exciting that was so cool um or maybe ones that you know maybe they never got to market or like mass market adoption but were you just like you reflect on it, you're like that was that was so cool yeah. <laughs> there was a few in that category i mean for and for all for kind of different reasons uh, one was we worked with Xerox Park uh, in Palo Alto to do um, to build some of the prototyping around this smart cities initiative that they were they were selling to a bunch of, of American cities. So that was cool just to kind of go down to park, hang out in those labs, meet those people. Um, the dynamics that were interesting there is we were we could build stuff and build things really fast and often engage with cl- clients that couldn't really articulate what they wanted. <laughs> They would just kind of say, uh, kind of like this. And we would then, you know, um, um, kind of expand on that and articulate it and build and, you know, suss out really what the real requirements are. So they liked us a lot because they could speak in terms of like, 
you know, MATLAB scripts and like whiteboard sketchy and hand waving. And we would come back and build a thing. And they're like, oh my God, you built a thing. <laughs> so that was a kind of a cool relationship. Um, there was also some local founders in Canada that we built their early products for. Um, and that was really rewarding because, you know, hiring people and, you know, actually building and advancing a product, it's hard right in those early years. And so um, some, not all those founders kind of fit into a template of having all of the right team and all, you know, all that stuff. And so being able to advance those companies and allow them to kind of catch their next wave, uh, you know, and uh, we, we worked with a number of those um, that, that were really rewarding. So ultimately with Boltmade, you were acquired by Shopify. You mentioned there was a few other acquirers. What really made Shopify stand out and, and what year was this? Because, you know, now in 2022, going into 2023, Shopify is probably one of the most well-known tech companies in the world. Uh, what, where was mm -hmm. Shopify at that point? Was it, you know, in growth stage? Like, were you just following Toby? Like, like what, what really made you choose Shopify as an acquirer? Yeah, this was 2016. Uh, and for Boltmade, we, we had been operating for four years and had kind of reached a plateau of, wow, this is what we imagined building in the first day. Like it all, it's kind of like it, it's all the squares are colored in, right? We need a, we need a new, a new goal, a new mission, a new plateau or a new, new, new something to, to new vision to reach for. So I was kind of in that fertile space anyway of saying, okay, we're either going to you know, grow massively to scale or whatever. We're going to grow geographically. We're going to, you know, how, how are we going to change the kind of the core of, the, of our, what we do? And just at that time, um, there was, there was a, a couple of companies that reached out. We had, I had no intention of selling shop, uh, Boltmade at all. I mean, this was my, my build forever in, in my, my forever company, you know, the sort of, sort of situation could go on forever. And I was thinking more in terms of succession planning and how do I, share ownership of the company out with more people and, and almost build a, a partnership model around the company um, instead of a startup that would that would sell. Uh, but we started entertaining a, a couple of offers, inbound offers that came just completely serendipitously. And it's amazing how the universe works sometimes. I think it was the, it was the same month we had a couple of a very bona fide sort of, sort of inbound um, uh, conversations. And one of them was Shopify. And it was, it was, um, it was, it was pretty obvious that the alignment in our culture and in where that comp where Shopify was at the time uh, just felt like, well, this is obviously our next evolution. <laughs> like if, you, if you if you knew the narrative of Boltmade, the style and, and culture and, and personalities and the almost needs of the people involved, uh, we were kind of at that Boltmade. We, we had come a long way with Boltmade, but we're like, okay, what's the next most awesome thing we could do? And when Shopify came along, they were the story was. We were going to join the the plus organization, which was focused on the largest, more, most complex merchants on the platform. And so these are these there there was like maybe a couple of thousand of them at the time, where maybe there was three hundred thousand merchants or two hundred fifty three hundred thousand merchants on the platform, and call that one percent ish. Were were in the plus category, and and power laws being what they are, those a few thousand merchants were responsible for a lot of demand on the platform, a lot of the sales. Uh, and internally, culturally, it was a challenge because Shopify is all about democratizing and enabling merchants to kind of to get started. And so a lot of the, the internal culture was around getting somebody signed up, getting them selling their first first order, et cetera. Plus was then on the other end of the spectrum saying, 
you're many, many orders in <laughs> to your entrepreneurial journey, you're scaling, you might even be becoming a public company. I mean, these are, these can be, uh, you know, fairly large organizations in their own right. How do we expand the scope of applicability of the platform to the, you know, to the most successful merchants? And so it was a, it was a new area. They had a sales and marketing uh, team in place, uh, but they hadn't really had product uh, or, or engineering or design or anything like that at that point. And so it was a pretty compelling story. I mean, I, th I think Shopify was around two and a half billion in market cap. They were public as of a year and a half, used to growing over a hundred percent a year in terms of revenue, headcount, complexity, everything was just, was just crazy. So in a lot of ways, I wasn't sure we, we weren't, we didn't want to sell. <laughs> we weren't motivated to sell. We were a profitable company. Everything was going very well at Boltmade and we could have developed another, another, uh, found another gear there for sure. But when we compared it against the the one in, once in a lifetime uh, sort of opportunity of being able to work with Shopify, the really shockingly great alignment between what we offered and what the you know and what they needed, it was just it kind of became a no brainer. It almost it it almost became uh, the decision almost had momentum greater than any of the decision makers. It was like, well, it's, this is just so so aligned. <laughs> it just almost has to has to kind of fall into place. So it was, it, it kind of became that, that level of like, duh, let's just figure out the, the details of this and get it done. Um, so, and, and that's in talking with the team at Boldmade, that's, that's kind of what everybody had the, the sense of. You've gone through a few acquisitions as a founder um, and also as, as a member of a team, you know, Google, now Shopify. Is, is there anything that you can share from what makes a good acquisition versus a bad acquisition? Um, and, and what ultimately made that, that Shopify one successful? Oh man, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I think the first thing to note is most of them fail right now, depending on whatever criteria you really use to, to, you know, whether it's a creative financially or the cultures eventually mesh, et cetera, it's hard to know, you know how to judge success. But I could say in my, in my case, I was pretty preoccupied, even subconsciously, with making sure that everybody I knew and met thought that this was a success. <laughs> this, right? Um, I was kind of responsible for it, making sure that it kind of came over, um, you know, adapting our culture and team and identity into a growing Shopify one in Waterloo, uh, kind of detribalizing early on to make sure that the people we were adding weren't just kind of, you know, the it was the Boltmade folks and the non-Boltmade folks and making sure everybody kind of was one team. Um, but it's it's a challenge, right? I mean, it's uh, it certainly is an accelerant um, to growing an organization, and I, I hope Shopify to this day, you know, considers it a, a successful uh, acquisition. I think I think that's certainly the case. Um, but it's it's you know it, it, being a, being somebody that goes along into the acquisition, I think it 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 presented a lot of challenges for me personally. I mean, I think the our team felt and me and myself. I felt very validated to be acquired, right? It's like somebody, it's like being, you know, picked at the dance or something. It's like, no, you, of all of these, you, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's easy to misappropriate that uh, as, you know, some sort of ego driven, oh yeah, you got, you know, you, you're all that. Uh, and, and so you, you got to sidestep that because when you get in a, a large organization like Shopify, first of all, you're not that important to the grand scheme of things as much as you thought you were. So what, once you, once you kind of adjust that and calibrate, um, you re you get into the, this very, very new game on day one. So the game I was playing in startups, um, the rules of engagement, if you will, uh, of, of early stage companies were, are very much move fast, um, 
use your intuition, synthesize, you know, very weak signals of information. Most of the the time you'll be wrong, but if you make decisions quickly, um, you can more than make up for it. And your nimbleness is, is better than being right. When you get into a larger, faster growing organization, you need to recalibrate. I needed to recalibrate that. And I didn't have those, that outlook or those skills, or even the, the confidence that I could adapt to them well enough. So it, it created a lot of anxiety for me and to, and for certain aspects of my team too, that were, we wanted to build stuff. We wanted to get stuff out. You know? And and so when you check out the big uh, Shopify repo and you start ramming in changes, cause you're, <laughs> you're trying to make your mark, uh, you know, the organization reacts, you know, the, the antibodies get, get thrown off pretty quickly. And you're like, whoa, 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 you guys don't know anything yet. <laughs> you know, slow down. <laughs> and so those, those uh, cultural, cha- you know, or those desires just to kind of, um, um, you know, to, to make an impact, uh, you know, they, they need to follow a different process than we were used to in, you know, the faster iteration sort of, sort of world, you know, you need to understand about, you know, who stakeholders are, how do you generate buy-in, how do you articulate the problem better uh, and more completely so that, you know, you're even solving the right problem at the right layer of abstraction or the like the right scope, um, as opposed to just kind of starting and iterating. Uh, which you know is is the is kind of the purview of the early stage startups and can be and can feel really good when you're doing that sort of stuff, right? So instead of you know pull requests, where you know it's it's Google Docs, right? To and and just that reflex of changing uh, changing that reflex took took a while, and, and there was a lot of cultural pushback. There was like, oh, how come you know this team won't let us you know push changes? There's was a lot of those sort of changes that you know, having had got a little perspective on that now. It's like, well, that's, I, I wish I knew at the time that the game changed and and looking back on it, it's like, duh, how, how could I have not have realized that? But I think it would have made that first year <laughs> a lot easier because we were running around trying to change the world and the rest of Shopify is like, well, well, slow down, <laughs> quit it. You guys are reckless, you know, chaos monkeys. You know, stop it. So uh, so I, I think there was, there was a, a multitude of those kinds of lessons uh, that, I, uh, that I enjoyed learning. Uh, but I have to confess that it was a challenge to learn them, right? Because they they seemed like a um, they seemed like an attack on all the things that I felt validated for for being acquired in the first place, right? Like, was I acquired to come in here and be, you know, stay in my lane, or was I acquired to come in here and like you know, hustle and, and shake things up? So I think um, uh, find, finding the balance there, uh, building trust, uh, understanding how to operate in a large fast-growing organization, I think is a challenge. I, I wish we talked about it more in, um, uh, I mean, there are subtle problems in some ways relative to the startup world, right? Because, you know, the, uh, but I but I think they affect, uh, having gone through this myself, uh, they affect everybody that, you know, that ends up in a, you know, transitioning from small company to a large company. Uh, they just don't realize, how, you know, how much things change and really where your, your intrinsic enjoyment comes from um, in the, both of those two environments can be pretty radically different. Um, I think both environments offer incredible opportunities for personal growth uh, and and uh, and learning, but you have to be pretty intentional and mindful for what uh, which mode you're in at the time. Keeping in line with the acquisition thread, there, would you say it's just due to the nature of you know venture capital and startups today that you know it's moonshot or bust? You know, going for IPO, you're building mm-hmm. your own culture, and like acquisitions are almost deemed as a, a negative, which is, uh, which is funny to actually say that out loud, but like, mm-hmm. what, what is your thoughts about, you know, maybe there was more acquisitions even 10, 20 years ago, and now it's really 
the moonshot uh and and how do founders you know build that internal culture but also you know if a, if a great acquisition comes along like you can be successful with that yeah it, i think it's a good question i think it i don't know if there's a, if i have a right answer to that um you know i think it it comes um temperamentally from what kind of company and what kind of work you know you're you're able to do and you enjoy doing um it's something that i'm kind of surprised in our industry that we have worked around is this severe power law relationship between you know in outcomes of companies i mean there's other industries that are much more flat <laughs> right that can that can have a, a much more direct uh value creating story and uh, it's not all you know moonshots or nothing I, th I think uh you know when you look at who <clears throat> if you look at who benefits from that relationship i think you look at the you know somebody who can index across an industry and pick out the moonshots those are the only people and or very very lucky people you know are the only winners in that in that sort of physics right where you know if we had less severe um you know power law relationships you know you, you can imagine building 50 million dollar companies or 100 million dollar companies and having them be, be, be profitable for a longer period of time and and i'm not convinced that that's not a better world <laughs> especially for the people involved uh because as your investors are able to index across a lot of opportunities but as an as an entrepreneur you're in one very likely right and so um i i think it's a it's maybe maybe too far to say but i think it's a misalignment of incentives to be honest with you um and and i think the consumer internet has kind of flared a lot of that uh in that it's you know it's you know winner take the hindmost you know, uh, you know all you know full market or nothing Silicon Valley has a pretty efficient capital allocation preference to refactoring out redundancies and and uh competition right and making sure there's kind of one big company per you know per uh um you know area of concern in the internet you know whether it's you know Facebook and social or Google and search and ads and you know etc right there's they tend to not have a lot of uh companies that are willing to compete away the you know the margins so uh, you know it's it's interesting i it, you know it, it is pretty factual how things are turning out in the nature of the of the of the market at this point um and you know when i put my investor hat on i can i can think in those terms but when i put my entrepreneurship hat on <laughs> i think in pretty different terms so i don't know if that if that skew is you know tells you anything about uh you know my own my own personality but it's um i i think increasingly i i, I could see us um, you know, maybe it's why enterprise SaaS makes a lot of sense to, to more people as a, as a, um, um, you know, an, an, uh, not an easy, but a, a little bit more reproducible model, um, that you're not kind of in a hit space business. You're not, you know, you don't have that mercurial element of it's either <laughs> all or nothing, you know, to me, I don't know what part of your life you operate in an all or nothing fashion, <laughs> right? We don't tend to do that in, in a lot of other aspects of our lives. But somehow uh, in tech entrepreneurship, we're willing to roll this di these dice like this. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe it's a sign of immaturity uh, that will shed over time. At least I hope we do. With with the power law uh, discussion there, I feel like Shopify, probably one of the biggest beneficiaries of the power law, especially in the e-commerce space. So that first mm -hmm. year, you kind of bolt made, you have that culture fusion after the merger ultimately how long 
Were you, did you spend at Shopify? You obviously saw it through some of its biggest growth years. What was that experience like and, and what kind of memories come to mind from that time? Yeah, I mean, most of the day-to-day is um, just keeping the growth working. Um, you know, I mentioned before where you have a, you know, a, a really smart team of, of engineers, designers, product people wanting to build new features as fast as possible. Um, that was tempered around, plat- you know, platform stability uh, and and just scaling the current, uh, you know, the, the current application. I mean, we joked about the fact that, um, though I'm sure it never was entirely true, some days it felt true that whatever the next incremental benefit uh, a feature you're going to add, it has to be weighed against the possible negative impact <laughs> of the thing that's actually working. That's It's kind of the, the non-obvious part of having a super successful product is that just not fucking it up is actually quite a bit, is <laughs> a lot of the energy, right? So so a, a lot of it was, you know, the, the actually being the dog that chases the car that catches the car. Uh, there's a, there's kind of a, a lot of funny psychology that kicks in of saying, wow, this thing is actually working. It's, you know, I've started a lot of companies that have never scaled to a, you know, a, a percentage of what Shopify was able to scale to. And you're always kind of building these non-scalable things that eventually, you know, if you ever caught the bumper of the car, I don't know what you'd ever do, but in Shopify, you, you know, we, we had that, right. And so the, the there's all these kind of non-obvious results of, and consequences of that building an organization, you know, um, keeping everybody uh, aligned and clear and communicating what the, what the intent and future direction is just pure communication, uh, you know, being willing to have to say the same thing, 20, 50, a hundred times to different overlapping group groups of people, just so people hear it for the first time on that hundredth time you've said it, just that whole change in, in human scale of activity was just, that's what filled every day. Like the, the, and it was, a, it was seemed like a game of inches uh, of progress through all of that time. Because uh, even though we're introducing pretty substantial products, a lot of it, a lot of the effort in the engineering organization was, was scaling that, you know, our ability just to run the platform at all. Um, so it was, it, it was, it was very much a game of inches, keeping up with the growth um, in in terms of revenue, uh, performance, uh, bots, internal employees, uh, onboarding people, hiring people. Uh, all of that sort of stuff was just, and and honestly, 90 plus percent of people had never done that at that speed, at that scale. You know, it's like, okay, go hire a hundred people today, you know, this year, like, start, <laughs> fill a pipeline of a thousand so you can get, a, you, know, a, you know, eventually get a hundred and, and just being able to do those things, uh, learn, learning how to do them, failing, um, you know, adjusting, et cetera, was, was uh, a lot through a lot of that period of time. Um, but it was, it was fun to see it. Um, but it's a pretty tiring game too. <laughs> so ultimately maybe get a little bit tired. The organization is growing rapidly. What, what yeah. happens next? Yeah. Is that Alora brewing, uh, side projects startup, uh, you know, you're kind of a, a founder at heart. So the organization is just massive and maybe going a different direction than you wanted to. So what, what happens next? What's that that, mm-hmm. that shift there? Yeah, it, it was, uh, I had started Alora Brewing back in Boltmade days. And so that was a, um, I was living in Alora at the time. And in Ontario, uh, the craft brewing scene was just kind of evolving and coming out of nowhere. 
and so it became pretty obvious that in our little little village of Alora, uh, there needs to be a brewery, and we, you know we should be the people that do that. And I, I think looking back on it, I think I was itchy for a more tangible business. You know, I, I had built lots of businesses that had ship software at Ether and didn't really have anything to show for it, <laughs> nothing real. So I think that was the attraction at the time uh, of buying an old building, renovating it, designing and building a brewery. Uh, you know making beer, having a hospitality front end of the, to, to the place, selling physical goods out in the world, you know, in a regulated market, all these things. Uh, turns out really renewed my my love and appreciation for building digital things, <laughs> as it turns out. The grass is always greener. Um, you know, atoms are hard. And uh, even though we enjoy doing this, I mean, you, you get to see, you know, the. I, I guess I'm, I'm lucky in that I can see the benefits of both worlds. Um, but it's really nice to have that local community connection for live music and culture and, and doing those sort of things. So that was kind of fun. Um, and it still goes on uh, to this day and it's growing and, and, uh, and figuring it out its place in a, in a, in a bigger market, which has been, uh, has been fun to encourage. Um, I'm not operationally uh, as involved there, but I'm, uh, I'm uh, on the board and the chairman of the board. So that I, I uh, spend a lot of time thinking about what lower brewing. So that was kind of going on. And so when I, when I left Shopify after a few years, it was, I needed to kind of reassess. I mean, at that point, I was full 48 years old, and I had kind of come through my career in with a certain kind of program, right, of, you know, conscientious, disciplined, risk-taking, but always with a hard work, you know, a work ethic and, you know, build value, be kind, all these, all these whatever. But it was, what, what I also learned was I kind of had a self-exploitive sort of mode, right? Like I hadn't even though I was always physically active, I hadn't really taken any time to really take care of myself, to um, um, develop my own relationships personally with my family, with my with my wife, with my kids. You know, who who had who sees dad as you know the the successful achiever, <laughs> but you know, as ironically as that kind of uh, increases, you know, it can get alienating or distant, or you know, you, if you're too busy because you're doing too many important things, it's like okay, well, go off and do your thing. So when I, I actually got a, I got a whiff of that and I got a sense of that. And I'm like, wow, I don't think that's the kind of person I want to want to really double down as. Uh, so, so I, I kind of made, made, had those kind of personal epiphanies right around the same time. And, uh, and, and then I, that really influenced, you know, how do I want to actually uh, define the next phase? You know, I was, you know, grateful enough to have come through, you know, a couple of acquisitions and, and some successful business, um, you know, ventures and accumulated enough assets in a pile that I hadn't really paid attention to, you know, quite frankly, but now it was, okay, I, I'm, I'm done adding to the pile for a minute. Let me just get my house in order personally. And so I, I spent the next year, um, you know, getting my own kind of family office established and understanding how I'm going to organize this stuff. How do I be responsible with this? Uh, what does that mean? Who am I going to work with? How do I just get my arms around this stuff? And that was surprisingly hard. It's, it's not, it's, it's kind of champagne problems maybe, but it's when you have that burden, people aren't, people don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you ask people with a few bucks where how they manage their money, and you know the, the answers are are profoundly different, right? And so finding my version of that took uh, it took a fair bit of time just getting my house in order. So it, that that led me to getting a little more proactive in investing uh, and understanding even how I would do that if I would LP into funds, which gives you certain indexing uh, you know sort of properties in, into the market and is a little bit takes away some of the heavy lifting and working with, with early stage opportunities. But then at the same time, abstracts away all the fun stuff that I actually enjoy in terms of being more hands-on with operators and and uh, being able to add value or help when, when I can. So um, too bad for me as an investor, but I like to kind of go narrow and deep with the companies I'm working with, right? And uh, 
And that means usually there's a chemistry component to how, you know, what I can provide to, to founders and what they need and, and whatnot. Um, and so I've been, been enjoying finding those opportunities and, and, and working with, with a handful of early stage companies where I can help. And that usually that comes in terms of capital and time and, and uh, you know, helping where I can on in growth, engineering, recruiting, and, and just helping the founders themselves kind of work through their own, uh, their own challenges. How has that shift from founder to an investor been? I, I've spoken to a few investors either on the pod or just informally and say, you know, the biggest thing is you become like kind of like that coach mentality. Like you can't fix the problem yourself. You have to coach, you're on the sideline, your hands are tied in a certain sense. So how has that shift been for you? Have you actually enjoyed it more with all that kind of experience that you have? Or do you find sometimes you have to hold your tongue or hold back a little bit? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a, a really good analogy. Is is the that player coach sort of thing, and and I, I think it's come with my own evolution. So I have less of a reflex to get in and grab the wheel. Uh, honestly, <laughs> the, the the companies that I work with that I that I enjoy as an investor are obviously ones that don't need my help. They're too smart for me, right? They're like, <laughs> see you later. And those are those are fun when they're when you find them. Uh, but often they're more in the middle, right? And and there's different seasons or phases to every company where there's you know there's rough patches and whatnot. So so I, I think I look at my engagement with those companies as we we talk on a weekly basis about or bi-weekly basis sometimes on whatever the issue of the moment kind of is. And I'd put about 20 to 30 percent of my actual value in that sort of stuff, right? Because it's like, okay, it's mostly just being a sounding board for the founders kind of, you know articulating what they think the challenges are. And I think most of the benefit is them just get verbalizing it and getting it out of their own heads. Um, I'm not dispensing pearls of wisdom, you know, or, or really anything that I don't, I don't think that there's too much differentiated in, in the conversations we have. But what that does do is it builds trust and rapport and context uh, over a period of time so that when something does happen that is maybe more of inflection point for the individual person or the company, you're not coming from a cold start, <laughs> you know, and talking through those things, you know, maybe it's a key role that's leaving. Maybe there's a key role that needs to be hired. Maybe the company is trying to figure out some, you know, existential crisis issue. Uh, and then that's, that's to me is when I like to show up, <laughs> but, but it kind of requires that you put in all the pre-work uh, to kind of get there. Right. Cause you, I, I don't think you can show up as authentically in those moments unless you actually have the the trust and the, and the goodwill of the founder on your side. So that's kind of how I think of it is I'm actually here for when the shit hits the fan. Um, but we kind of got to go through the the day to day, you know, to, to build the credibility and trust and context for, uh, so that that time can be useful. When you're, when you're looking for startups to invest in, you know, you mentioned there that the ones that don't need your help are the ones that you want to work with. And also your time at Shopify of, you know, people experiencing that growth and things like that. I feel like, people coming out of the Shopify machine are, 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 are tuned differently than any other found potential founder here in Canada. So what are some things that you, you're looking mm -hmm. for? Is it the, the space that you kind of know well? Is it, you know, the founding team that impresses you? Like what kind of things do you look for as an investor? Yeah, I think there's uh, I personally have some tension between, um, great opportunity as, as an investor uh, and they almost become obvious. Um, like, like I said, if, if, uh, if, if, if they don't need me, that's a pretty good indicator of <laughs> that they're, that they're, they're an interesting investment opportunity, which is ironic because I like to work with, I like to work with companies. 
Um, and as it, this is where, you know, being a product person or an engineer through your career is a challenge to transition to being an investor a little bit, right? Because 99% of the time as an engineer, shit breaks, things are terrible. The product is not built out yet. That's normal, right? That's just a day in the life, <laughs> right? So you're used to seeing that. You, and you know that when things finally come together and cul culminate in an MVP or even a better product or whatever those are, those are these just points in time. And so most of the time, you know, the thing is searching for a, a customer. It's, there's bugs in it. It doesn't perform well. It's like, so though that's normal. And so when I look at an investor presentation or look at a product demo or something, and I see all those things, it's like, well, yeah, that's just another day at the office, right? No big deal. <laughs> but so where I should probably pass it as an investor, I go, that's a really cool problem. I think I could really help you build the, <laughs> build your product. When if I was a better investor, I would just pass and say, no, 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 which you guys are, are a little further along, de-risked, uh, et cetera. So I think there's some, there's some, I, I recognize that there's kind of this big gray area in between. And that's where I end up spending most of my time. Um, but it, but it is, uh, you know, I, I, I do chuckle to myself a lot uh, about where on that spectrum I end up being. Um, if you really want to make money, I mean, uh, you know, startup angel investing is, it's fun, but it is a sport of kings. Uh, after a while, I mean, it's illiquid, long-term, highly risky, right? It's it's uh, you got to really be a glutton for punishment, um, uh, you know, on, on some of this stuff. Um, but as a, as somebody who enjoys this stuff, and really my whole career is wrapped around it, um, I can't not do it uh, at the same time. So it's it's trying to figure out, you know, where do I best cause the least damage, <laughs> right? Uh, so it, it's, uh, the incentives get pretty, pretty interesting when you really, when you see enough of these iterations, it's, um, uh, but it's a lot of fun. And, and when it works, it, 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 it's re it really is a lot of fun. Um, uh, and often knowing when those are in advance, uh, it's really hard to know. I'd love to jump into the, the quick fire round there. Um, and the starting question is, what is the best book that you have read or maybe one that's on your uh, bookshelf that you need to crack into? Oh man, so many, uh, my Kindle's kind of a wash in, in, uh, in new books. Um, probably my favorite book, um, was a book by Neil Stevenson years ago called, uh, Cryptonomicon. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but, uh, I'm sure your listeners will be, uh, it opened up for me, Neil Stevenson in general, which is my favorite kind of, uh, sci-fi fantasy author, uh, as it, and back then, um, I know I'm, I'm really breaking type when, you know, a dude a programming dude that likes reading sci-fi. I mean, this is, this is kind of central casting, but it's, um, that, that opened up a lot of his writing and so much that I've read from him, you know, the system of a world series and pretty much everything he's written, uh, ever since. So I, I, that's my not quite guilty pleasure because it takes some grind to get through a lot of his unedited long-winded sort of prose, but I, I really enjoy that. Um, just, just wrote the, uh, or, or just read the, um, Peter Thiel, uh, contrarian book, which I, I thought was a little self-indulgent, but kind of kind of interesting <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I read uh, every day and enjoy it. Um, it's um, keeps keeps me uh, um, up to date on on things that I don't get, you know, through my phone or through social media and stuff. I, I, love, I like the deep think, uh, so I enjoy reading. Um, question question two. Um, you recently, the second question would be focus more on what are you most excited about this year, whether that's personal or work-related investing? Uh, I know you just 
recently bought a farm within the last few years. So a lot of projects around there. What's got you excited right now? Yeah, for sure. The farm, the farm is an absolute delight. I have to say it's a real change in context and uh, lifestyle. <laughs> I, I, my wife and I joke that we traded our life of comfort and convenience for the exact opposite, but we have, you know, the day is filled with lots of stuff, lots of, lots of animals, lots of, lots of projects, lots of things to do. Uh, one of them that is pretty cool though, is we have a four or five acre field in the middle of the farm that we've allocated into this uh, kind of a farm incubator. So it, it, so it's a little bit like worlds collide here a little bit where, you know, you have, I, I think I have a, a, a big passion for locally grown food in general and how do we make that more accessible and um, as both as a job, as a function, as something, somebody that would be something that would be exciting for somebody to do uh, and economically rewarding and, and sustainable. And, and, you know, not, it's not even describing the, the end product and the results of, of all of that. But I, I think there's in the spirit of, you know, looking at tech and what tech has done and, and its contribution to the economy, I think there's a lot in food, in uh, in uh, employment, uh, in different aspects of society that that uh, I'm excited to kind of play with. Um, and I can say, having worked outside pretty much every day for the last year and a half, uh, something I haven't done since I was about 16 years old. Uh, it's the benefits to you know to um, health, you know, spiritual, physical, and otherwise is uh, is something that I've really missed uh, through my my time in, in technology. Uh, and I really have enjoyed. So, if I can encourage other people as a you know to to get out and be able to do that, we have we have four farmers currently growing vegetables, uh, cut flowers, medicinal herbs, etc. And this is year one, so we've installed a bunch of infrastructure out that there. And so we're looking for next year and the and the following years. How do you deal with with hard times? Um, you know, it sounds like that kind of return to nature has been great. You know, reading. What things, you know, when you were a founder or just even currently, do you do to like really help balance yourself out? Uh, great question. Um, I don't think I did much uh, when I was in the heat of it. Uh, I lived very exploitive uh, of myself and others around me, to be totally honest with you. I think that I justified my accomplishments as needing and requiring sacrifice and I did it, right? And because sounds kind of grandiose, but I think that's what I, you know, I was, I'm a Gen Xer. That's kind of what we were raised to do, right? You kind of, you know, work hard, do good in school. Um, that, that kind of came naturally and it fed my own self-importance, <laughs> I think through, through a lot of those years. Um, and honestly, it was part of what I think helped me, you know, realize the difference, you know, in, in how I can act, uh, and how I can be in the world. Right. And, and, uh, um, but having reflected on that quite a bit in the last couple of years, you know, I don't know if I do anything different, you know, to do it over again, right? I think, I think really there's kind of seasons in your life, seasons in every project that require different things, right? So I, I don't think a monotonous, even balance over the course of your life is going to achieve much, right? It's kind of a, a gray recipe for goo, right? Um, there's times where you need to do unsustainable things. You can't do it for long or forever, but you know, it's sometimes that that's just kind of what it takes. And so being able to kind of recognize that and say, okay, at this point in my life, I'm going all in on my startup. So therefore I'm going to, you know, if I put on five or 10 pounds, I'm not going to be too hard on myself. Right. Um, you wouldn't want to do that for very, you know, for a decade or more, but you know, they're, they're realize that there's, there's uh, there's time for those things. So I, what I, why, when I talk to young founders now, 
um, I encourage them to kind of think in those in those terms and um, kind of you know be a little kinder to themselves in terms of their own expectations, right? Like you don't you don't need you don't need nor is it likely possible for you to have it all at once, right? So don't expect yourself to. You don't need kids, you know, a, a loving partner, a rich family, a, you know, a physical fitness, you know, an Instagram influencer, model body, and a, you know, a raging startup. It's like, you know, relax, man. Like <laughs> take things kind of one at a time. Um, and, and certainly that's, I'm still working on the influencer body right now, you know, in, in, at 50. So <laughs> being able to take the time to, to, to dedicate for, you know, for physical fitness is probably something that should be a, a through line, you know, a little bit more. And I think that's I, I something that I have used through my life is, um, uh, is to make sure you're taking care of the the vessel as much as the as the mind. You know, I think in in our line of work, it's it's a high risk to really over-index on smartness, uh, but realizing that you know your overall performance and and well-being and ability is you know more of a package deal, right? So you know, unless you take care of everything, you're 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 uh, you're you got you got a time bomb on your hand, and and I've certainly been in that situation a couple of times, right? Where it's it seems too important, too much to do. Um, you know, something's got to give. So maybe my first, my first ounce of advice would be recognize which things are going to give uh, and be prepared to let them go. Uh, but then realize that at a different point in your life, you know, you can, uh, you can shore those up and it's, maybe it's your responsibility to do that. I love that. Good. Perfect. Good. Yep. I love that. And Jim, this has been such a great conversation. We covered so much and appreciate the insights, appreciate your time. And there's been a lot of fun. And I feel like there's a lot more to chat about on potentially a future episode. Hi, anytime, man. I, I love what you're doing too. I think this, uh, you know, mining people's stories for, uh, for, you know, for what they are. I think it's a, it's a really nice thing that you're pulling together. And, uh, I, I think there's a lot of founders in Canada and beyond that, that, uh, that, uh, have some amazing stories to share. So I'm glad you're out doing this. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.